Hello, and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 127. Oh my gosh, got so many amazing comments about last week's show with Dr. Jolene Brighton. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, please do. Uh, And this week, I have a fantastic topic uh, to discuss with our guest today, shame. I've invited Dr. Joseph Bergo onto the show, author of the book Shame and uh, and a couple of other incredible books. He is fabulous. Uh, really, really insightful interview today. So we're talking uh, about shame in the context of it sometimes being a, a springboard to building resilience. We're talking about those positive aspects of shame that we don't talk about very often. And we're also talking about um, shame in terms of how we are geared culturally today to be on exhibition all day, every day through photos, pictures online, etc., and how that impacts other people um, and inadvertently has other people feeling shame that you haven't even perhaps intended. So it's a really, really interesting discussion. And uh, uh, Dr. Joe has been a practicing psychotherapist for more than 35 years um, he's also held licenses as a marriage and family therapist, clinical psychologist. Uh, so he's really able to go very deep on this stuff. And we touch on narcissism because he has another book, uh, Why Do I Do That? And the Narcissist You Know. Um, so it's just been amazing to to pick his brain on this subject. And I, I hope you get a lot out of today's show. And if uh, by the end you feel inclined to grab his book, I highly recommend it. Some of the personal stories of of clients of his over the years of patients were really, really touching. It was fascinating to see how they healed based on actually addressing the shame they had felt at some point in their lives. Really, really fascinating. Uh, Now, before I kick into my chat with Joe, I just want to mention that uh, a couple of you have been confused because we had to change the date of the start of Go Low Tox this round. I'll get into that in a second. So it's not starting today. It's actually starting next Monday. Maybe that has you breathing a huge sigh of relief because you hadn't gotten around to signing up yet. But Go Low Tox is a course I created five years ago now. We have had three and a half thousand students from over 49 different countries do this course. And when I opened this course up in 2014, I really thought I was just going to be teaching people how to uh, swap their lunchbox from a plastic one to a stainless steel one, swap their lipstick to not having lead in it, um, get their indoor air fresher and healthier for their families. But really what transpired has been nothing short of incredible. We have had so many students banish things like headaches, migraines. We've had so many students be able to have babies. We've had so many students have all manner of wonderful things happen to them uh, through the course. And also some really incredible work and businesses that have started from the course. I can't tell you how many people have now become uh, nutritionists, naturopaths, environmental scientists, building biologists from doing the course and being inspired uh, to perhaps have a think about the kind of work they want to do, how they want to show up in the world. And by all means, like most people do just go in and make some happy swaps and influence their school canteen and 
uh, do the best for their family. You don't have to do anything massive, but I just love how many people have been inspired in unpredictable ways. You know, it's really amazing when you switch the light on with people and for them, uh, what they then take that to mean as a reflection of how they want it to look in their own life. That really is uh, the joy I get because I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just providing information, resources, solid evidence, and fantastic expert interviews that absolutely back up everything that we talk about in the course. Everything's founded on um, science, current research, whether it's just, oh, let's put a question mark on that precautionary research, or whether it is proven uh, to be damaging in some way in terms of the, the chemicals we might be looking at. Um, and uh, and I just, yeah, I, I feel very grateful to help people unlock a, a part of themselves that is often dormant in this busy modern world. We're often completely closed to forming connections with nature through the things that we might buy or surround ourselves with in our home or eat or put on our skin. And to help people retrace that journey back to nature is uh, one of the greatest joys I have in life. So if that sounds exciting to you, if you think, you know, I've been swapping things for a while, but maybe it's time to go a bit deeper and just make sure that I've dotted all my I's and can cross all my T's. Uh, this really is an empowerment course. This is not a course where I'm the guru and you need to find answers from me forevermore. I want you to finish this five weeks feeling like you could pick up a tube or a bar or uh, anything anywhere around the world and know whether it's going to be a great choice for you or not, know how to ask questions of companies so that you do get accurate information, um, and also just to have those life skills to, to live uh, sustainably and to adopt regenerative living wherever possible as well. I mean, if we all, the more of us that do this, uh, the better things get, frankly. I become more and more hopeful, not more and more terrified, because I constantly surround myself with you guys who are all doing something, who are all putting their hands up to do something um, in their own lives or in their communities or bigger. Uh, all of it matters. So uh, join me next Monday if that sounds exciting. If you have the book, the main difference is the fact that this is about three and a half times the information. We go much, much deeper because unfortunately books have word limits that you have to adhere to. Uh, and uh, and so the end of course PDF that students get in Golotox is 135,000 words. My book is only 60,000 words and includes food and a lot of recipes. So just to give you an idea of um, how deep we're able to go with an online platform where we can constantly be adding more and more new research, more interviews, etc. So uh, that's the main difference. And of course, a lot of people say, you should mention this too, so I will. Um, the fact that you have my private coaching for five weeks in the Facebook group, please don't panic if you're not on Facebook, just create some random alias we have people called Daisy Chain in there. We have people called um, Pink Panther and uh, and they have real names. They just don't want to be on Facebook. They don't want their friends finding them, friending them. They don't want the whole social persona. So that's what they do to stay undercover and just be a part of the Facebook group because it means you can whack up a label for something, whether it's a cleaning product, whether it's a sun cream, whether it's a cushion you're thinking of buying, whatever it might be, we cover absolutely everything in the course and we can workshop it together. If you're not feeling sure, then we haven't done our job yet to make you feel completely empowered. So that's what that private Facebook group is for. Go to lotoxlife.com uh, 
forward slash, oh, I'm going to give you the wrong URL. So just go to lowtoxlife.com and you have an e-course on the front page there of the website that you can click on and you'll see that Go Low Tox is one of the options. We kick off next Monday. It's for five weeks. Please don't panic if you've got a busy month ahead. Uh, you can literally just do the cheat sheets every day, which take five, 10 minutes if, if that's all the time you have, or you can go full A-type and watch everything and chat in the group for hours. You know, it really is what you make of it. So I'd love to see you there. Now, here is my chat with Joe. I hope you enjoy today's topic on shame. I loved it and uh, and I know you will too. Look forward to hearing what you thought on social. Hey, Joe, how are you? I'm good, Alex. Nice to be here. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I want to thank you for writing uh, not only your wonderful new book, Shame, but the books you've written in the past, which I know we're not talking about today so much, but having mentioned them in the intro, I know there'll be people adding them to their list uh, for sure. Uh, now, to help people who may not have heard of you and your work before, um, I would love to just start by asking you what led you to study uh, shame, the human mind, and how we can change and and adapt and grow whatever the circumstances of our past and whatever's happened. It looks like there's a, a pretty common theme in your work that you really love helping people move forward. So I'd love to see how that evolved for you in life. It, it's it, it's a very personal story. Um, I you know I've been a therapist for 35 years. I was trained as a psychoanalyst. I've been practicing for a long time, and in my 40s, my you know my sort of ideal life fell apart. And I had to deal with a lot of my own shame. Mm. Um, it wasn't a concept that I had dealt much with. Shame wasn't really addressed in my training. But a good friend of mine was it was in therapy with a man. And she was always talking about shame. And I started talking with her about it. And then I, I realized that so much of my uh, adult life had been about trying to deny my own shame and trying to make this life that looked perfect on the outside. And um, my going on from there was, you know, learning about my own shame, then learning how to help my clients with their shame, and then starting to study the science of shame. And it's just been my preoccupation for the last 10 years, I guess. Mm. And something that caught me in the early part of your book is that uh, you describe, you sort of take us through a shame spectrum. And I had never thought of shame like that uh, to have it, for it having like various sort of um, degrees of severity or impact. Can you talk us through that spectrum and, and how you came to identify it? This came out of my research when I started reading um, in depth about shame. And there's a whole group of scientists who study the the biology of emotion, let's say the physiology of emotion. And according to these people, um, there are a whole group of emotions, I call them the shame family of emotions, that share a painful awareness of self. So anytime you become suddenly aware of yourself in a way that feels bad, that's a shame feeling. And it could be something really mild, like just like that self-consciousness I talked about, or embarrassment. Or it could be really big, like humiliation or mortification, where you just want to die. Um, but they all share this 
painful awareness of self and they have a common biological basis. People react the same way when they feed them. They, they tend to drop their gaze. They have a hard time making eye contact. They look away. There's usually um, heat in the face, blushing mm. in, the, in the face, body, a, a longing to disappear. Um, these are common symptoms of the shame family of emotions and they might be brief, fleeting, mild, or they can hound us for days and be really deep and painful. Mm. And do you feel like we become used to being that way? So we almost perpetuate shame in our lives? I, I think I think we've become shame phobic, to be honest. Oh, I think that, interesting. I think that, you, you know, my last book is a lot about the, the other side of shame, which is narcissism. Mm. And, and I, think, I think as a culture, we've become really invested in presenting our, you know, ideal selves to the world with our, you know, Instagram and Facebook feeds and everything looks great. Here's this fabulous meal I had, this party I went to. Here we all are having this incredible evening. We all want it to look great. And any you know, implication that we're not great, we, we just really can't tolerate. So we're always trying to look good. We're always, we're always trying to avoid any experience of shame. That's mm. my personal opinion anyway. Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I walk past, I walk down my street, let's say I'm going for a morning walk, and often you will see people preparing themselves for selfies, getting in situ, like contorting their chests in a particular way. Like, <laughs> you know, these photos, it would just take hours to prepare um, for a snapshot of what they want their life to look like or how they how thin they want their waist to look. And I just feel sad that that's where we are. Well, and you know there are programs to, you know, Photoshop your selfies to make you look even better. It's funny you should mention that. I was just hearing the other day about a girl, a girl and her girlfriend, picture it by the beach. They had a lovely day. And then the girlfriend posts the picture on Instagram the next day but she looks a bit taller and thinner and her boobs look bigger. <laughs> and the friend just looks exactly as she looked at the beach, gorgeous, healthy, some summertime, you know, lovely. And uh, the friend was like, oh, my gosh, what did you do to yourself? She's like, oh, I've got this guy in Poland who sorts it out for me. And, uh, and I was just so, I mean, I'm an ex-gen chick, so, like, that to me is so crazy to do that. Um, yeah, it, it really is. It really opened me up to the fact that um, we're, we're striving for a perfection that doesn't exist and then we're making other people strive for what they think they aren't because of how we have doctored ourselves to look. And it's, it's so crazy. Uh, and Well, and, and that, that image of perfection that we're always putting out there has the effect of shaming other people. Exactly. Because it makes makes them feel less than, makes them feel inferior, like they're not measuring up. So, And then, you know, it, es it escalates from there, right? Because they then have to build themselves up and we never get real. Mm, that's right. And you ask us to get real at the start of your book really well by getting us to do a survey. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it made me think about my childhood. And it actually made me realize I am incredibly blessed uh, and uh, I had a relatively happy childhood. It brought up very funny memories like uh, the year eight, grade eight locker room um, 
before school and someone found a bra and someone decided to say it was my bra and it wasn't but it was like a bra for a flat as a pancake chick and I am and always will be and uh, I just remember like not admitting to that being my bra because I would never want anyone to think that I didn't have boobs at all by year eight and I was it was just this I was like I had completely forgotten that thanks a lot Joe for your survey (laughs) rehashing the past but it was really useful I actually found that useful to remember these moments and think shame's there for all of us but we bury it that and that that's really the intention of the survey and where it comes in the book is just to sort of wake you up yeah. and to get you get you thinking about all these different ways of looking at shame and how common they really are. They really are. So I scored low, like rarely, um, for most of the answers. And there's a scale, and I encourage everybody to do this because it's a it's a quite awakening. And you mention in the book that many people score up to their 40s and um, and beyond, uh, and I scored a 12. So I'd love to hear what, um, I guess, what it means to as in, in terms of where you find yourself on that scale and then what we then do with that information. Um, well, it, you know, if you have a higher score, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have been more damaged by shame than somebody else who had a lower score. Okay. W- what it means is that shame has just played a larger role in your life than it has for most other people, but you might have you know, managed it well. You might be shame resilient. You might have been able to get through those experiences and still feel good about yourself. And that's, that's what you know, the rest of the book is about learning. But um, it, isn't, you know, it doesn't mean high score, you know, you're really damaged, low score, you're healthy. It doesn't yeah, mean yeah. that at all. Okay, cool. Uh, it, it was nevertheless a fascinating trip down memory lane and made me realize that, uh, that yeah, I, I, had, I, I have built a shame resilience and I think that came from my parents and my early years. Like I, I really do believe that that was a big part of it. And when I was reading your book, you talk about how to set the stage for um, resilience uh, in the earlier part of life. Can you share a little bit about what that looks like um, for the parents out there, how we can build resilience in our kids? I would love to because that is that is my favorite area of the research that I did for this book. Awesome. It, was, it, was, it was so interesting. So you know we've been told for the last few decades by parenting experts that you have to praise your children all the time and make them feel good about you know, everything they do, and you should never shame them. Well, it it turns out that this actually doesn't work, and that what that's led to instead is a kind of a narcissistic, um, pretty shame-brittle group of um, young adults who can't tolerate criticism and expect everything that they do to be great. So if you look at the research in parenting, what it shows that in in the first year of life, Parents do need to do that thing that we've been told is right. We need to have sort of unconditional love for our children. We need to adore them. We need to make them feel that everything they do is a source of joy and wonder to us. You know, when they roll over, when they crawl, (laughs) their first words. And it is. Yeah. (laughs) It is. I know. I mean, it really, I think back on myself as a parent, and it really was. It was just like a miracle. Everything my kids did was a miracle. And nobody had ever felt that way before me. Of course not. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But then, and this was the fascinating research, is then that 
starts to change around the time that children can walk and they can move away from you. And we have to socialize them. We have to start telling them no, and we have to teach them the rules of behavior in a group that's larger than you know, mommy and baby. And shame is one of the tools that parents use to socialize their children. And this is, this I think might be hard for some of your listeners to grasp because it's not shame in that way we usually think about it. Not this, you're a bad child. You know, you, 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 sh- you should feel terrible for doing that. It's not, it's not that thing. It's, it's a little look of disapproval. It's, it's a correction. It's like, no, you can't interrupt. I'm talking to Dana's mommy right now. Wait your turn. You know, it's, those are, those in the, in the terminology of uh, people who study neuroanatomy, those are stress experiences. They're shame stress experiences. They're painful. And it, it leads the child to want to fix it. So they don't have to feel that way anymore, right? Who wants to feel that kind of pain? Mm. So the little, the micro shame experience is a lesson on how you need to behave and children learn it and they bring themselves into conformity. You know, they conform to what the parents expect them to do. And then they get that joy that they've had and gotten used to in the first year of life. Oh, I'm so proud of you for waiting your turn. Thank you for letting mommy finish. So it's this this joy-shame-joy cycle that really instills true self-esteem and helps our children, you know, be able to weather the challenges that life holds for them. Mm, amazing. And I really love that you've brought shame out as a term to be a useful parenting tool when done right, because... It is. It's basically like interchangeable with discipline in that sense, in that example you've given. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I always like to think, well, always is probably a strong word. It's really in the last few years that I've realized it, but that discipline breeds joy and freedom. And so sometimes, therefore, we can, with that interchangeability, shame can breed joy and freedom when done right. So when is it that it's not done right? Can you share some parenting examples where it wouldn't work, like, you know, screaming at your child in front of a group of people or things where it's really quite damaging? Yeah, I mean, that's a a really good example, but it's it's the sort of pervasive... Um, expression of disapproval that that kind of condemns the whole child, mm-hmm. like like con- I, I can com- never do anything right, kind of vibes. Right, yeah. It communicates the message that you're you're fundamentally flawed and unacceptable. That's ruinous. But you know the discreet communication of disapproval of a some kind of behavior with the opportunity to correct it. That's helpful shame. Okay, great. And what we're supposed to be looking to do is when they do correct it to really acknowledge that they've done a great job. Exactly. And I think that's something we also have a hard time doing. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, we just sort of take it for granted, but we do need to acknowledge that they've done, they've learned the lesson they needed to learn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, great. That's, so it's a positive reinforcement thing. Cool. Yeah. N- now, something that I I found interesting was – uh, that shame is encoded in our DNA. Yeah, people don't like hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was a big one. I was like, really? But, I mean, I, I've read uh, quite a bit of research around um, epigen- epigenetic inheritance of, of stress 
and, and things like that. So it's it's not impossible. And I'd love to to hear you talk about uh, how how you researched that and what you found. I did I did um, some reading in um, evolutionary biology mm-hmm. and affect affect theory is the other area. So this is how I think about it. You know, human beings everywhere have a pretty similar complement of emotions. I mean, everybody feels sad, they feel happy, they feel depressed, they feel anxious. I mean, it's not like people in China have a different emotional set, right? Mm. We've all we've all got the same group. And it turns out that people everywhere in every culture experience shame. Darwin noted that first, and it's been confirmed since then. And they all express it physiologically in exactly the same way that we were talking about earlier, gaze aversion, blushing, desire to disappear. So why, why is that? You know, why, why did our evolutionary history encode that feeling in our genes? It, it must be there for a reason. It can't be merely something bad. Mm. So it turns out that Shame, like most of our emotions, evolved during the you know the hundreds of thousands of years when we lived in in small tribes, yeah. and our survival depended a lot on being able to work together cohesively, following the rules of the tribe, and if you broke the rules, it endangered both yourself and the tribe. So, what evolution did is it encoded this shame feeling. And if you break the rules, if you broke the rules, you would be shunned. You would be put on the outside. You'd be shamed. And that feeling is so painful that it led people to want to obey the rules and you know, work for the survival of the tribe, which promoted their own survival. So it does have this, it does have this survival value. Um, and I think... I think it still has a lot of value. I, I, I think shame's gotten a bad rap over the last 10, 20 years. I think shame often does have a lot of value in teaching us something that, that can help us in the long run. So talk to me about that. How can shame help us in the long run? Is it a, a, as simple as resilience or is it more than that? No, I, I think it is more than that. I think that, you know, we've we've gotten so used to thinking of shame as this you know, toxic experience that usually comes from the outside. But really, shame, shame comes up every day, and it comes up in these, these different situations that I talk about. You know, it, it comes up when, you've dis- when there's disappointed expectation, for instance. Yeah. So let's just say you, um, you took a test at school, and you thought you had done well, and you got a bad grade, and you feel ashamed, right? Mm. You feel shame. Now, I think the tendency most of us have these days is to say, ah, you know, the teacher, teacher, that was an unfair test. Yeah, we try to put it on someone else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The teachers never liked me, and this was a stupid test anyway. And then to move on. Well, maybe, maybe the reason why I didn't do well on the test is because I didn't study hard enough. You know, I just didn't master the material. And it, the shame I feel, if I can listen to it, if I can bear with it and not brush it aside, might be, you know, telling me, you know what, you need to work harder next time. And if I do, then I can succeed the next time, which will make me feel good about myself. So shame sometimes points the way towards areas where we need to work harder and for opportunities to build self-esteem. Mm. 
That's fantastic. So, such a re- it really is a reframe, isn't it? it we, we start to see shame as a springboard to something better. Right. And that's not to say there aren't those other toxic kinds of shame, you know, that that John Bradshaw and Brene Brown have written about so effectively. But I'm just trying to enlarge the conversation and saying, no, there's this other kind of shame, too. And we need to listen to it. Mm. We need to learn, learn from it. So in terms of learning from it, when we've been the subject of constant disapproval, as we were talking about before, that feeling like I can never do anything right for this person, you know, um, whether you're a partner or a child or uh, the, an employee, how do, we, um, how do we build resilience when we feel um, quite sort of uh, lacking in hope because because you kind of get chipped away at right when it's over and over and over again. Well, it is, and I think if you're if you're talking about an experience with someone who makes you feel you can never do anything right, you know that mm. that kind of shame is giving you a lesson too. It's giving you a message, and it's saying time to move on. You know, right. go go find somebody else. Um, you know. If it's not somebody that you're deeply intimate with, I think having a sense of humor really helps. You know, just to just to to recognize it as that this is that person's problem. The people who are shaming you are they're doing what I would call projecting their shame into you. They're offloading it so they don't have to feel bad. They make other people feel bad. So it helps to recognize that. Um, helps, as I said, helps to have a sense of humor. And it, you know, it it helps. The real way to deal with shame is to work on building your strengths, working on your skills, doing things that make you feel proud of yourself so that you have a stronger sense of a worthy self that really is resilient in the face of this kind of shaming. Mm. And if it's a couple situation, uh, how would you as a therapist help people work on uh, destructive shame, excess shame. It, it's a it's a really difficult problem mm. working with couples, um, and I I think that you know the kind of intense shaming that's coupled with expressions of contempt for the other person has been shown to be a pretty strong predictor of divorce. Right. Um, what you see are these couple dynamics where. Um, they get involved in what I call shame trading. Um, Craig Malkin, an, another a friend of mine, another psychologist who's written about narcissism, calls it. He says shame is traded back and forth like a hot potato, mm. um, and that's a really a really pernicious dynamic. And I I don't work with couples right now, but I've given this a fair amount of thought, and I think that you have to begin. I would try to diffuse that dynamic by starting off by asking people, well, what do you like about your husband or your wife? What do you see as his strengths? Because often when people get entrenched in this sort of shame trading posture, they lose sight of why they married this person, what Mm -hmm. they love about them. Um, So I I think you have to kind of build up the positive um, to offset all this relentless negative. And then I think individually you have to help them recognize how they're not dealing with their own shame um, and you know they need to own that and figure out well you know 
what is it that I actually have to feel ashamed about and what can I do to make this better? You know, this, these postures of self-righteous, you know, indignation and blaming are, you know, they're death to a marriage. Yeah, gotcha. And it kind of comes back to that school kid who wants to just hate on the teacher and the stupid test. Uh, And if you repeat that behavior on into your late teens and adulthood, you can see how you end up being half of a couple that engages in that behavior. I, I do think that, that, you know, blaming other people, becoming indignant and feeling contempt are, you know, are really common strategies for dealing with shame. And, And, Again, that's the that's part of my last book. That's the the kind of the narcissistic set of defenses. We're all we're all trying to feel that we're just fine and somebody else is to blame. Mm. And uh, so, in, if we can dive into that narcissism conversation just for a little bit, uh, you you talk about how we can defend ourselves from narcissism, as in like not breeding it in ourselves, but also from other people who are narcissistic. Uh, can you share just a couple of strategies? Because I really feel like it's it's part of building the resilience picture, whether we're talking about narcissism or shame. Well, you, you know, I'm often asked for advice about how, how to cope with narcissists. And mm. um, I, I always have my, my first answer is always get as far away as you can. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the bottom line, because if we're talking about a, a true narcissist, someone who's characterologically a narcissist, those people don't change. They're relentless in their attempts to run from shame and to inflict it on other people. And there's nothing you can do to make it any better. You just have to get away from them. Mm. But, but we do, you know, we do encounter, you know, sort of everyday narcissism. We do have people who, you know, who get defensive and blame us for things who, or who get critical. Um, that's just a, a fact of life. Um, and I, I think that, the most important thing is not to get involved in a tit-for-tat sort of game. Mm-hmm. You know, just the way we were talking about the way couples often do it, where they trade the shame back and forth. If somebody shames you, the last thing you want to do is try to shame them in return. Yeah. Uh, that just becomes like an, a battle, you know, like who's going to feel ashamed. That doesn't work. You know, I do think that, you know, letting it go and getting some distance, first of all, is is really important. We often, you know, we're, we're likely to be triggered by that, right? It's, yeah. hurt, it's hurtful. Um, and when we feel that kind of pain, our first impulse is to want to lash out and react quickly. Um, I think to the extent you can to, you know, step away from it, all feelings dissipate over time. When you can get some clarity, try and understand what was going on, you might be able to see that the other person, it was their issue, or the other person behaved in an insensitive way, and you need to say something about it, you know, you know, in a, in a helpful way. Mm. Like, you know, you, you kind of hurt my feelings when you said that the other day. I wish, I wish you wouldn't talk to me like that, you know, but avoid the reactive, you know, battle stance sort of you know, reaction to shame and see what you can figure out about the interaction that you can turn it to something constructive. And But if it's the sort of person where there's nothing constructive that will come of it, then I think you have to reevaluate that relationship. If it's a person who makes you feel bad about yourself and there's no room for improvement, what are you doing there? Yeah. 
Yeah, and that can sometimes be a really <laughs> a really big thing to settle in with and, and go, yeah, this we actually have to move out of this situation, whether it's a friend, a partner, um, yeah. No, it's really, really difficult. Mm. Um, and to turn things a little more positive, something I love in the end of your book is we get exercises so that we start to see – uh, shame as a tool to build uh, um, resilience and one of the first uh, exercises about self-awareness is, is the first step. So can you talk me through uh, how you came to realise the power of self-awareness and what that then creates a starting point for, for, for further work on ourselves? Yeah, uh, yes, I can. Um, well, you know, when I, when I started reading about shame, I, I realized that there, there are all of these typical situations that come up where we feel a, a member of the shame family of emotions, and that's part of what that test at the beginning of the book about is about, is trying to sensitize people to these categories. So they are unrequited love, mm. kind of kind of self-explanatory. You yeah. know, you feel you feel bad about yourself if you love somebody or like somebody or want to be friends with somebody and they don't return the feeling. Mm. You you feel the other the next one is exclusion. You feel bad about yourself if you're left out of some friend group. You know, yeah. did your friends go out without you? Why weren't you invited? Why didn't you get to go to that party? Why didn't they ask you? You you know, you feel bad when you disappoint expectations like we were talking about earlier. You didn't get the job you were hoping for. You didn't do as well on that test as you expected. Um, and you feel shame when there's a kind of unwanted exposure, like when someone holds up a bra and says, oh, this is your bra, <laughs> <laughs> right? You, you really don't want to be exposed. So the, the, first, the first goal is just to really open your mind to yeah. those situations and look back over your week or your month and, and ask yourself, well, did that happen to me? Did some... Did some colleagues from work go out for a drink afterward and not invite me? And how did how did I feel about that? Um, and at this time of year, it might be uh, might be useful to think about your New Year's resolutions that you've probably already failed to meet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is a great source of shame, which is why I advocate against setting New Year's resolutions. I'm so glad great. you said that and clarified. Yeah, they're a shocker, yeah. aren't they? Well, they're ter they're terrible because you you set yourself up for failure. Mm. I mean, you're we don't change in big dramatic ways like just because it's January one. We yeah. don't do that. Um, so look at those and see. Well, was there a disappointed expectation there, and how do I feel about myself? Um, and then you know, you can take a little broader view and think about shaming experiences in your life and think about whether or not there's something you might learn from those experiences. Like maybe, this is a hard one, maybe you didn't get that promotion because the other person worked harder than you did, had a bigger skill set than you do because she went to night school to learn different programs. You know, there, there's. it's often hard to admit to ourselves that, you know, we we weren't the best for the job 
or that we, mm. we we didn't succeed for a good reason. That's a hard um, pill to swallow, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very hard pill to swallow. But if you can you can swallow it, sometimes it might motivate you to to get better qualified, you know, to yeah. do what that uh, and that's that's the rib, the big takeaway message of this book is that not always, but sometimes shame has this lesson about ourselves that if we listen to it and learn from it it will help us to grow. And, you know, building self-esteem is, even though the book is called Shame, it's really, it's ultimately about how we grow to feel good about ourselves. That's the whole point. Yeah. And I love that. And I think, you know, while I did say that was a hard pill to swallow, it's something that our culture doesn't do enough because we're such a pin it on someone else. This is someone else's problem. Oh, if I judge someone else, I'll feel better about myself. You know, that is a really common theme that I see out there socially these days. And it it is building for me. It, it looks like it's making us more volatile as a society. Um, we're just not as resilient because we don't actually work on ourselves. And I'm not saying you need to like literally be working on yourself 24-7 and you would be far better placed to talk about how we work on ourselves uh, in the work that you do, Joe. But I do see that there is something so powerful about the buck stopping with you and you admit that and you say, you know what, I didn't try hard enough or I haven't actually pushed myself enough to really know whether this is going to succeed or fail yet and uh, and really be honest with ourselves. Well, you know, you don't have to work on yourself 24-7, but I do think that viewing yourself as a person with strengths um, as well as weaknesses that has room to grow that can become a better person or a better whatever you want to be. I do think that's that's a framework, that's a way of looking at your life that can lead to happiness, contentment, satisfaction. I know for me, my life has been a lot about trying always to to grow, you know, mm. to learn more about myself, to work harder, to be a better person. Um, and I don't mean that in some moralistic way. I just, you know, just, you know, working harder at things. It makes me feel good about myself. And I think it makes most people feel good about themselves. You know, one of the one other set of research I talk about in the book is is the early infant research that shows how purposeful babies are, how they're they're always wanting to do something, you know, to reach for an object, to crawl, to walk, and that when they achieve it, they they feel joyful. You know, mm. there's joy joy in achievement. And then when their parents share that joy and mirror it back to them, I think that's that's really building self esteem. So it's it's feeling good about yourself has these two components. It's working towards a goal trying to be a better person, trying to get a degree, trying to, you know, work up in your profession in a positive way. Um, and then sharing your your joy and achievement with other people. I mean, that, that to me is what life is about. And yeah. that's how we, we feel good about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's nothing better than a close friend or family member achieving something and then being there to celebrate it with them. And then they're happy that you're celebrating and uh, you know, it, it's in our digitally connected world, we can sometimes forget those beautiful in real life reinforcements of each other are so, so important. 
Well, and it's, you know, it's the face-to-face thing that's mm. so important. You know, it's just, it's all about faces. It's all about seeing the joy on somebody else's face when you tell them your good news. I mean, that's not like the same thing as getting a bunch of likes on your Facebook no. post. <laughs> no, it's really, really not. Um, now, can I ask you a personal question, Joe? When was the last time you experienced shame? Oh, it was probably sometime this week. Mm-hmm. Give me a yeah. second. <laughs> Give me a second and I'll think about that. Okay, so we had dinner over at some friend's house and I had one glass of wine too many. Mm-hmm. Something that I, you know, I... So you had two instead of your usual one? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> if only over that. Um you know, no, I, I have, you know, I, I'm not an alcoholic, but I often drink like one glass more than I want to. And I feel, I feel bad about myself the next day. Uh-huh. Um, and it's sort of an ongoing struggle with me, you know, like sometimes I'm successful at it and then I feel really good, you know, like, I, you know, I'm just, I had a couple glasses of wine, I drank some water, I woke up feeling good. But that day I woke up feeling a little under the weather and thinking, you know, you really didn't need to have that last glass of wine. So that's a familiar experience to me. Yeah. Okay, cool. So it's the like self-denigration shame. Well, is it self-denigration? I mean, if I believe like a little that. Bit. But, but maybe it's the, it's the. Maybe it's the self-criticism that could be motivating. Like, ah, maybe, I gotcha. Like, I'm going to remember this for harder. the next dinner party. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. And I do. Yeah. And I do. You do um, achieve do it or you do try? <laughs> I, do, I do remember it and I do try and sometimes I succeed. Over time, on balance, I drink less, I'd say. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, you know, it's that thing. It's like your, your shame... Because, you know, when you violate your own expectations for yourself and the person you expect yourself to be, sometimes that's an appropriate kind of shame. Mm. Like, if I hurt somebody's feelings because I behaved in an insensitive way, um, well, maybe I should feel ashamed. Maybe that'll help me to be more sensitive next time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so in that sense, do you feel like it's useful for us to call out immediately when we when we see someone being insensitive because often we then feel ashamed and we move away from that situation instead of facing it straight away oh it's such a difficult thing Mm. Um, i struggle i struggle with this because when you see somebody who's behaving in a shaming way right yeah say to somebody else, not necessarily to you, and you want to you want to stand up for that person, kind of the only way to do it is by exposing the shamer to shame. Yeah, which means um, we're then shaming too. I'm sorry? Uh, does that mean we are then being shamers as well? We are. That isn't necessarily bad. Maybe mm. they deserve to be shamed. I mean... I mean, what comes to mind right now is the fact that with the Me Too movement, there's a massive amount of public shaming going on to men who deserve it, mm. who deserve to be shamed. Yeah. Um, but sometimes people deserve to be shamed, but sometimes that's not the most effective way to deal with it because it'll just stir up their narcissistic defenses and they'll go on the attack. Right. Sometimes 
you need to say something later, like take them aside and say, you know, last night what you were saying to Jenny just was, you know, you didn't really think about that, but I think she felt, you know, a, a bear, embarrassed about her weight because of what you said. Mm. And sometimes the people, if you do it that way, you see, if you do it privately where they're not exposed publicly, um, they can hear it. But mm. if you, if it's if it's too big, if the shame is too big like it feels like public humiliation, well, then they can't bear it and they have to attack you. Right. And is this how we get victim blaming? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's really interesting because I've never quite, I, I always find such a hideous injustice when victims get blamed and shamed. You're like, what? So it's actually a narcissistic arc up of, um, of society or a particular person that has been shamed for the behavior that they displayed or what they did and it's their self-protection mechanism well it is and that may be the only one they've got they don't know what else to do Mm. um i mean when you think about these 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 men in the me too movement who have been shamed and it's so massive and their their lives are in some sense over you know Mm. they're never going to be the same how do you how do you deal with that I mean, it's it's so massive that it's it must be unbearable in a way. Mm. I mean, I think one of the other refuges for people like that is to feel sorry for themselves. Um, I, I think that self-pity is often a refuge from shame. I think self-pity is what people with a lot of shame have instead of self-esteem. They have yes. self-pity but not self-esteem. Yeah, and actually in clinic you, you, um, you deal with this a lot and you talk about it in the book. So can we just talk about how we can take ourselves from self-pity to self-esteem, some practical steps? It's a, it's a really difficult transition um, to make. When people are entrenched in feeling sorry for themselves, it's very hard to give up that position because there's a certain kind of precious comfort in seeing yourself as a victim, an undeserving victim, right? Well, yeah, and in the Me Too movement, you'd say to these people, uh, well, you should have thought about that before you made these people feel lifelong hurt, shame, and sorrow for what you did to them. Right, Mm. right. Well, but that's, you know, that's, they're not standing up and speaking out out of self-pity, I think. Right, okay. I, I think they're standing up and they're standing up for themselves and they're saying, no, I deserve, I did deserve to be treated better than that and I'm not going to be silent anymore. Mm. That's the transition is to stand up for yourself in, in a way that, you know, speaks for your own value as a person you know, does criticize the person, does shame the other person because they deserve it, but doesn't take special comfort in victim status. And that's that's not what I'm hearing from women in the Me Too movement. I'm not hearing victim status. I'm hearing a sort of empowerment Absolutely. that comes from getting out of the victim status, you know? Yeah, yeah. which um, is so important for their healing. It, it is. It is. And, you know, the, the client I talk about in my book that had the special problem with, with masochism and self-pity, um, it's been, it's been a, a tough road with him. He has this history of getting involved with women who treat him really badly. And it's obvious from the get-go 
that they're going to treat him badly, but he stays in the relationship and feels victimized by them and feels like he's this poor, misunderstood good guy. And, and you know, what's wrong with her that she's treating me this, this way when I'm such a good person? It's been very hard to get him to give that up mm. and to recognize at the beginning you know, I talked to him a lot about warning signs early on. He just, we just went through this again with somebody new he started dating. And I was pointing out to him, like, okay, here's, here's a warning sign. You were supposed to get together on Sunday, and she ghosted you. Mm. She, she didn't even, you know, text you to say she wasn't feeling well, and then you heard from her a day later. And she said, oh, yeah, I know we were supposed to get together on Sunday, but I just really stayed in bed with the flu. And she, so she didn't. She didn't tell you, she didn't have enough regard for you to notify you, and that's a warning sign, and you need to say to yourself, you know, I, I deserve better than that, and I'm moving on. Mm. That, that's very different from moving forward and then feeling sorry for yourself when it was predictable what was going to happen, right? Right, right, yeah. That's so important that we all remember these things. For the daters out there, remember your warning signs. Um, there, there's one more thing I would like to ask Joe, which is really the fact that, I mean, you were able to recall quite easily a, a moment you felt shame this, this past week and chances are all of us are going to feel a moment of shame even today or next week. Uh, whether that's like seeing a little fat roll in your bathing suit or, you know, and thinking, oh, yeah, my body's just not good or, you know, which is probably the most common thing that women tend to feel um, in terms of regular shame. Or it might be a social situation or a work experience or um, uh, your child might feel shame, but we're going to see it all around us. What do you feel are some of the best things we can do when shame comes up for us moving forward so that we can use it, as you say, as a tool rather than be bogged down by it? Okay, so so first of all, let, let's rule out the kind of toxic shaming experience where somebody is deliberately trying to humiliate you with malicious intent, right? Okay. There, there's there's kind of nothing to be gained from that kind of shame experience, and the best thing you can do is protect yourself in future. Yeah. But the smaller shame kind of experiences, let's talk about those, since they occur on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of the book, I talk about our different strategies for dealing with shame when it comes our way. So the first thing we can do is figure out, first of all, we have to acknowledge that we felt shame, right? Mm. Did I feel left out? Did I feel like exposed in some way that I didn't like? Did um, someone hurt my feelings? Whatever it might be, we have to admit to ourselves that we feel it. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, how did I respond to the shame? There's three primary strategies that I talk about in the long middle of the book with the case studies, and that's we either try to avoid it, we try to deny it, or we try to control it. So avoiding it is we, we try to avoid situations where shame would come up in the first place, and that's not the issue here. So most of us, what most of us do when we have a shame experience is we deny it, mm. or we rationalize it, or we brush it off. That's the it's most no big deal. Yeah. Right. Right. That's the most common strategy. Some some people will then, you know, grab or will, uh, some people 
will grab hold of the shame experience and beat themselves up with it. And that's a whole other longer-term problem, people who, who try to control the shame by inflicting it themselves. But for, the, for most of us, we tend to deny, rationalize, and minimize our shame experiences. So watch, watch ourselves and see how do we do that. Do we, do we just brush it off? Do we blame somebody else? Do we make excuses for ourselves? So if, if we've gotten this far, and I just want to say that even this is really hard to do because it's painful. You know, shame is painful. I don't want to minimize that ever. When I say that it's an opportunity for learning and growing, I don't want to minimize it. It's painful. But if we can bear the pain and we can look at what are our strategies for denying it or brushing it off, then then we can say, well, is there a reason, is there a legitimate reason why I, I feel ashamed? Did I behave in a way that kind of violates my own standards? Did I not behave in a way that I, I think a, that I want myself to behave, the kind of person I want to be? Was I rude? Was I inconsiderate? Was I too narcissistic? Was I hogging the spot, spotlight? You know, what, whatever it might be, it, it can be telling us something about our own values and expectations for who we want to be. That's the thing about shame is it, it often arises when we're not living up to our healthy expectations for the person we want to be. If we can listen to it, that can motivate us to, to try harder to be that person. It doesn't mean we have to beat ourselves up for, you know, quote, failing because that's just part of the deal. We all fail all the time. We all let ourselves down. But, but to take it as an opportunity to learn something about ourselves, who we want to be, and then to try harder next time. That's all. Mm. I think that's a beautiful blueprint we can all take with us from today's chat and into your book if uh, you want more detail out there, guys, because I can tell you those, uh, those case studies were really something else. Reading through them, reading Noah's story, um, deeply moving stuff to see people um, journey through um, some some really, you know, tough stuff in their lives and come out the other side. It's really inspiring. Uh, so thank you so much for writing such a, a beautiful book, Joe. I think it's really shed new light on this word shame um, and and helped us to see what our little daily and weekly doses of shame can do to actually make us better people. And that was really my biggest takeaway. So I, uh, I urge everybody out there to read it. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. For me too. Thank you for letting me talk about my favorite subject. <laughs> anytime, anytime. And uh, everybody can find all of Joe's details on today's show notes. Please do go and uh, go and have a look at some of the articles he's written that we've shared there and his past books as well. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy. Lotox Life, 
so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Music.